stand up for yourself and I'll back you up because problems don't solve themselves I'll tell you what instead of would or could I think you should draw a line in the sand and stand your ground it's for your own good Hello, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Voice of Families and Addiction. My name is Roy Poyan, and I'll be your host today for today's episode. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the family as a system. And in doing that, we're going to kind of identify three of the learning objectives that come out of our study guide material, the Family Solution Finder Learning Series. And what we're doing is we're looking at the family as a whole, and that is different parts. So we can kind of think of it as something that it interacts when it's a whole, and it is an individual when it is somebody of functionality and potentiality and what it is that they contribute to the family. So let's, let's go over some terms of vocabulary, if we will. Um, in, in a family, we're, we're looking at uh, a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, aunt, an uncle, um, it could be uh, loosely defined as an elective family. Um, it could be a gay family. It could be a, a family of assignment by the courts. Um, there, there's no one single way to define, so what is a family? Uh, it, it's typically how the person would say, this is my family, and that's what we accept as being their family. So with that in mind, they. The one characteristics that we do find true when we're looking at a family is that it's a system. It, it tends to kind of work together in its pieces. And what we want to do is we want to try and determine how well are those different systems working and um, what's their functionality. And here's an interesting thing. If we're looking at functionality, we can look at it from two parts. How functional is the person in living their life? And then how functional is the person in kind of how they interact with the family? And when we're talking about the family in terms of interaction, in terms of interaction, we would be speaking of the dynamic. So here's more vocabulary. The family is a system as a whole. The family dynamic is how it, the system kind of talks to each other, works together, has dinner together, talks on the phone, talks about their family to other families and other people. This is considered the dynamic, and there's a lot involved in that. And there's a lot of interferences involved in that too, which makes it kind of confusing. But what we're going to do today is we're gonna look at the individual person and their functionality, and also their potentiality. What is their potential to contribute to the family dynamic? You know, when you get right down to it, what's their potential in how they talk to themselves internally? Because when we start to look at that, often how they're talking to themselves is kind of like what we end up receiving when they're talking to us. Uh, and we, here's an example. If somebody experiences uh, somebody's behavior and says, well, that's totally unacceptable. You know, um, he's getting everybody angry and he shouldn't have the right to do that. And now I'm angry. Well, that anger is part of this person's self-talk. And now when they come to the dinner table or they're coming through the door after school and they've been thinking this way, 
it spews out typically for all of us. And this isn't indicative of any kind of person or family. This is, really, this is the way we all kind of work. It's called a cognitive awareness of what are, we, what are we saying to ourselves cognitively? Because what we're doing is we're maturating a thought, we're trying to balance the thought inside our mind with our reward system, our memory, um, sometimes pleasure, sometimes logic, judgment, and reasoning. It all depends on kind of like what part of the brain we're, we're really talking about. But these are ideas that are being in our head, and um, the question is how functional are we handling our thought life? And how functional do we control our behavior based on our thought life? So why would we spend time when we're talking about families' voices and addiction? Well, this is a part of the family's voice. How we talk to ourselves is a part of the family system. How well we're able to function with our own lives, how we're doing at work, how we're doing with uh, our friends, how we're doing it with our church, whatever we're exposing ourselves to as individuals becomes a part of the family system. And actually, the opposite is true too. Because now what we're doing is we're sitting there saying, okay, this is the way kind of I am today. This is the way I'm feeling. This is how I'm moving through my day. And all of a sudden, this very oblique, doesn't belong here, spike jabs right in the middle of our thought life and we're reminded or we have an instance or there's a behavior that we see that brings forth forward and presents itself, it's addiction. It's a chronic disease of the brain and it is playing itself out. Jerry just stole my sister's car and I've got to go to school or work today with that thought in my mind. So now all of a sudden, because of this, as part of the family system now, the uh, substance use disorder becomes an integration in our functionality as other family members are. And then we start to take a look at, well, that's great, Roy. I mean, it's good to know, but what can we do about it? We can't control their behavior, given that they are misusing substances. Uh, that's something that they have control over. They, they have to learn how to control. But we can control our response. And we can strengthen our coping skills. These are two very important characteristics to our functionality. The way that we are able to maturate the behavior of the person that is in our family system, participating in the dynamic of the family, how we relate in relationships, all of this is a kind of an interplay. I wouldn't use the word a football game probably more like a hockey game where the puck's being passed around a lot and they're moving fast and they're moving down, up and down the ice and you know they're trying to get things done. Um, that's, that's life. That's a confusion of life, but it's also beautiful. So with that in mind, where does our functionality come into play if this substance use disorders comes into our realm? Well, that's why we want to take a look at ourselves inside the family as a dynamic and suggest that with family therapy, if we can identify more closely how does this impact us individually, and we take responsibility of ourselves inside this family because we love the family. It's very natural for the family to try and find balance. It's called homeostasis. And it's kind of a technical term for the idea that, you know, when one thing gives way, another comes in and tries to compensate it 
so that it kind of kind of lift up that which the other person was doing at the other time. So with that in mind, how'd you like that hand movement? Was that pretty good? <laughs> so with that in mind, we, we, we do have an opportunity to make a difference in, in how we respond. Remember, we go back to the beginning of this discussion and we said that response is a very important characteristic to what is taking place in terms of our own functionality. So what is it that we would want to do? Well, we would want to be able to correctly determine solutions to issues that come up. And um, we offer in the Family Solution Final Learning Series the 3D coping skills. There's other types of skills in behavioral sciences that are very pragmatic, very useful, and very easy to incorporate into your life. You see what I'm saying? We need to get smart. And what we're trying to do with this podcast is help you to feel, feel out, you know, well, Roy, <laughs> there's a lot of things in life to get smart about. Could you be more specific? Yes, I am being specific. Go ahead and Google and get on YouTube and look at, look at topics that say the family system in addiction and view those. Pick up books and follow people who are writing articles. Uh, SAMHSA and the NIH has written extensive best practices on how they have done scientific, you know, social scientific uh, examination of the family as a system, of the family dynamic, the different roles that family members play in a dysfunctional family. And the word dysfunctional sounds so derogatory, and we don't mean to be that, but in the sense of identifying a word, when a, when a family system has a family dynamic that is dysfunctional, then, you know, it's dysfunctional. It can be corrected, it can be repaired, it can be brought back to a newness that's probably even going to be better and stronger than where you were before you had to face all this. That's the good news. Your work is not in vain. The things that you do will make a difference in the quality of your life, but more importantly, in the quality of others' lives. So what is it that we're really talking about here? Well, we just said functionality and your potential to contribute your gifts and skills. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's say Bob is going to go to drug court. And it would be really good if a couple of the members of the family were in the galley to show the judge and the, and the, and the, and the staff that supports the activities of drug court that um, we're, 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 we're there with, with Bob in this journey. We, we're here and we're supportive. Um, but what if the functionality of one of your family members is more inclined to suggest... I just think they should throw him in jail because he needs to get smart about, you know, what he has to do. Plus, he'll dry up when he's there, and at least nobody will get hurt by what he's doing, and they, they have a whole bunch of reasons why. And I'm not suggesting that that's a good or a bad idea. I'm just suggesting that if they go into drug court, their functionality is that, their potential to contribute in a positive way, it may not be there. <laughs> so if you know that your brother or sister might if asked by the judge a question or two, how does the family feel about this? And that might be their response, and it's not the response of the families. That might not be the family member you want to put with you in that meeting, because you know in advance, you've kind of looked at how is my brother, sister, mother, aunt, and uncle doing functionally? How are they dealing with themselves? How are they dealing with the family? But equally important, when given the topics of the substance use disorders and all that it creates in terms of you know, trauma and other types of stress, how well are they responding in that environment also? 
So it's not just, you know, is my aunt a nice person? I'm sure, I'm sure she is. But will my aunt function well? And what's her potential to contribute? Because if she comes in and starts to justify his behavior, her behavior, then that's not going to be helpful. That, 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 that's something that, you know, you'd want to, you'd want to do something about. That's called enabling. We have a seminar on that topic that you can view later. But the fact is, once we know a person's functionality or we have some idea of it, we can anticipate in what way will they be contributing their potential to contribute to the environment. So there are some obstacles when we start to talk about functionality and potentiality of the different individual family members as it relates to the family dynamic, as it relates to the family system. And those, some of those obstacles are denial. Um, it's hard to function in an environment if you're in denial. Um, and so that's something that you could do something about. You could meet with a coach or a therapist or a counselor and sit down and, and kind of take apart some of the reasonings for your denial. They may be purely justified, but you have to kind of also then apply it to your real life. And does that denial interfere with you being functional in this environment with this as an issue, meaning the substance use disorders in the family dynamic? So now what we're going to do is we're going to sit there and say, so is denial a part of somebody's functionality? Um, is there a codependence as part of this? Are they enabling? There's 10 types of enabling. You'll learn that as I had suggested in another one of our seminars. So with that in mind, when we look at the individual in our family now going forward, we may want to, this is just a suggestion, we may want to actually take a look at their functionality and their potential to contribute and are any of the obstacles of denial, codependency, or enabling present? Because all of those are things that you can talk about as a family. They're also things that you can talk to a counselor about and improve upon. The strengthening of the family system is your first step when you realize that somebody in your family is dealing with substance use disorders. Make no mistake about it. That's the first thing you need to start to group around is your family as a system. It's dynamic and how functional and ready are we for what's in front of us. This is a chronic lifelong disease and it doesn't go away and it's never going to get fixed. Now you will manage just like you did with diabetes and asthma, and CHF, COPD, all of those are chronic diseases and we don't necessarily fix those in the sense that they go away but we do apply medications and good living habits things that we know through best practice results and empirically proven studies do make a difference we're going to take the same kind of science and apply it to this also so with that in mind let's take a look at some of the other factors that kind of interplay in this dynamic and we're going to touch on this just very lightly but we're going to do a much deeper dive in another episode of the voice of families and addiction. So with that in mind, it's trauma. And I'd like for you to think of trauma very briefly in these two terms. There's a little t trauma and there's a big t trauma. Okay. <laughs> actually, the, the clinicians actually do use that. And that's not a royism. And with that in mind, you're going to turn around and say, okay, if this was a one out, and you know it happened once and it didn't reoccur um, then that would be a little t so as dramatic as it may seem um, donna got in a car accident and she was using 
And now uh, that, that's a little T. Uh, Donna got in a car accident and when she was using, and now um, that's since created a problem because that was Bill's car, and now Bill can't get to work, so now his other sister, Allison, has to take Bill to work. Well, that's, that's stress now on the family. Remember we talked about homeostasis. So now all of a sudden, one of the other family members is helping Bill out because Donna wrecked the car that Bill used to get to work. So we can kind of see the ripple effect. None of this would have happened if she wasn't using it. She would have been able to drive down to the store and back in a very satisfactory way. But because this did happen, that trauma, that one-time trauma, becomes stress, and in some cases, anxiety. So we, we tend, to tend to look at it as, depending on how much stress and anxiety, will depend on whether it becomes a big T. A big T is something that kind of reoccurs. Child abuse in a family is a big T. And that's because it happens over and over and over again. Now we do want to just very briefly touch on the fact that when a trauma happens, especially in a family dynamic, because you're closed in with your relationships, when a trauma happens and you, you are sitting there saying, okay, that happened and it's a very bad thing that it happened and I'm afraid it might happen again. Well, now you've got stress and the stress is cause, causes anxiety. So in actuality, that one-time occurrence is reliving itself. So now the trauma, that you, you might have heard the term, takes on a life of its own. Well, in that case, anxiety picks it up and continues the trauma. So now we're reliving the trauma through our anxiety, which could turn into panic attacks, which also uh, does, in, in many ways, affect our sleep, which affects our overall health, our eating habits. Maybe even we start drinking more based around anxiety, which was caused by the stress of the initial trauma. So can you see how all of these things are interrelated? And once again, none of this would have happened if we weren't dealing with this chronic disease of, of substance use disorders. So when we're starting to look at what are we dealing with, when you have a suspicion that somebody it might, in your family might be using substances or misusing them, um, there's a lot of things that you can do, but one of the most important things you can do as soon as you can do it is to get a diagnosis. And now you might say, well, he's addicted. I mean, he's taking drugs, so that's a diagnosis, right? It's like, no, no, wrong. There, there, there's a deliberate way that we do a screening, which then tells us and alerts us to the fact that an assessment, which is much more lengthy, and it's a review of questions and then categorizing the questions with weighted factors for each answer. And then once that all gets scored, uh, an assessment is then done. And from that, uh, a couple more probably reviews, interviews are, are created, a history and other things are brought into this assessment concept. And then a diagnosis based on the DSM-5 is created. Now the DSM-5 is a book that uh, the mental health field has created in order to list, it's a very thick book, list all the diagnoses. And it basically says, if you see this, 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 and this, then you know it's that. So it helps you with a criteria, the clinician, to determine the correct diagnosis. 
everything runs off of a diagnosis. The billing codes run off of a diagnosis. The algorithm of treatment runs off of a diagnosis. If there is a variance, the intervention used to correct that, to bring them back to their normal plan of treatment, that variance is also part of the assessment. So there would be a reassessment in that case. So what are we really saying? The diagnosis helps us to identify what we're dealing with, which also from our sciences helps us to understand an algorithm of a treatment. The continuity of the plan of treatment is something that the family can participate in in supporting. You want to make sure that we are then doing what is needed to support the continuity, the continuance of the treatment plan. Because the treatment plan is designed on a basic kind of like linear algorithm, if then go to, where the right level of care and pharmaceuticals and nutrition and mental health is combined into a, this is what Jack should be doing. And if he's doing that, we can expect as an outcome that. So with this in mind, we're going to then take a look at addiction as a diagnosis. Well, of course we would, Roy. He's been misusing substances. Yeah, but we're not done. Because we're also going to take a look at mental health as a diagnosis. Oh, okay. So what is that? Well, that's called dual diagnosis. It's dual meaning they have an addiction and they have a mental health. Well, what would that look like? Well, they may be addicted to opioids for the past nine years. And uh, now, they're, now they're taking either heroin or fentanyl. You know, it's, the disease has progressed. And with this in mind, they, they also have a high level of anxieties uh, about for a lot of reasons. But one is the fact that they're having a lot of trouble stopping and, and, and creating a cessation of the, um, of the addiction habits. So with that in mind, we do want a, a mental health diagnosis, if there is one, to be assessed. So you want to get them to do that at the same time that they're also doing the addiction. And because this has been going on for a while, both of these play on our, on our level of um, immunity and our immune system. Our uh, mental health can play on stress, which affects cardiovascular. So many of our organs are interrelated to the addiction, the drug being in our system because it doesn't belong there, and, and all that that kind of like perverts. And, and then also mental health and what that has to do with all of our medical conditions. And that's called a comorbidity. Wow, oh, when do these terms stop? Oh, we're just getting started, sorry. But this whole field has a whole vocabulary. It's going, like going into the army with the acronyms. But the fact is, when you know these, it seems very obvious to where they fit. You're on a journey now, and this is the good news. We know this journey. We know this journey inside and out. And we want you to get smart. So the voice of the families and addiction will be a voice of empowered knowledge. That's where we want you. And that's our commitment to you, is to continue to bring episodes that you can review and say, I want to make this knowledge a part of me. I want to truly understand what it is that I'm doing for myself that benefits them as well as myself and my family. 
So where we're going to take this is now is a review of, hey, to the primary care, to the ER doctor, to the uh, addiction recovery center, if they do this level, I want a diagnosis on addiction, I want a diagnosis on mental health, and I want a diagnosis on medical. They may have a cardiac problem, they may have pulmonary glass from doing inhalants or smoking crack. Um, let's say that we just don't know all that they've done to their body while they were doing this drug. To assume that they don't have any mental, medical help, uh, medical situations requiring help, I think is naive. So more than likely they do. And more than likely they do have a mental health condition. So you get the diagnosis. Well, what does that all mean? Pretty much this is what it means. You got a diagnosis, that means that you're going to have to have a plan of treatment, okay, a plan of care. And you're also, the plan of care is gonna be derived off of what stage is the diagnosis in. So let's say you've got a diagnosis for um, fentanyl and opioid abuse, and you also have a diagnosis for severe depression, and you also have a diagnosis for hypertension. So we did the addiction, the mental health, dual diagnosis, and the comorbidity, the medical. Each one of those is going to have a staging. And you're gonna to wanna to know what stage, because later down the road, three or four years from now, when they sit there and they say, well, he's, he's, he's better, don't accept that. What stage is he at, okay? Is he, is he at a mild, a moderate, or severe? Because the DMS-5 and the other DSM-5 and the other um, types of manuals and, and algorithms, clinical algorithms, do provide the clinician with that kind of staging. That is what's gonna drive how are we going to treat this person. So this is a moving like dial, okay? It's not like they're gonna stay in moderate, you know, indefinitely. But when they shift, their plan of treatment needs to shift with them. Often, that's where we'll find a relapse, where something changed, but they didn't change with it. And, and then, therefore, they're left a little vulnerable, and that might be the, you know, the only linchpin that was holding it together, and now they're in the process of relapsing. So with that in mind, we wanna make sure that what we're doing with them is supportive of exactly where they are knowledge, the family voice, because you're a family system, you are allowed to have a voice. What we've done is we've like abdicated our family member to this system called recovery. Don't do that. You don't have to. You need to get knowledgeable and you need to use that as an empowerment and, and be available to say, I don't know, would you please explain that to me? Let's face it, that's how I got here. Um, I don't know, let's figure that out. Because all of this is known, okay? And it's all available if you want to learn it. And trust me, when you want to learn it, your stress level goes down considerably as a family. The more you know, the more empowered you are. America needs empowered families to fight this drug epidemic. That's the one thing that this drug epidemic counts on is our ignorance. So if we can go everywhere the drug goes and laminate it with knowledge in that exact area that it's sitting, we will suffocate its oxygen with knowledge. 
And that's something that is shared. And when we talk about sharedness, we talk about compassion, because that's part of what sharedness is. And when we talk about families, we talk about love and caring and kindness and empathy. We also talk about vulnerability and areas that make us feel uncomfortable. We also talk about a sharedness in the suffering, which, believe it or not, makes us stronger when we approach suffering in the right way. Knowledge allows you to approach suffering in the right way. So let's continue to grow. Equally important, let's continue to have a voice. And let's make sure that we share these episodes so others can grow in their challenge of, gee, I didn't know that. But now that I do, I could use it. And in that, they've got an internal voice and an external voice, and it becomes united as the voice of families in addiction. Thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode of The Voice of Family in Addiction, our podcast and newsletter. My name is Roy Poyan, and I want to thank you very much for letting me into your home and to your family table. Stand up for yourself, and I'll back you up, cause problems don't solve themselves. I'll tell you what, instead of would or could, I think you should. Draw a line in the sand and stand your ground, it's for your own good.